0: Wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. I invite us to give special attention to how we're called to love each other in the church. Right? Proving to the world that Jesus is alive, Jesus is changing us, and that the gospel is. True, And to do that, we're going to look at a lot of Scripture this morning. You're like, oh, well, great. (laughs) I think you normally use a lot of Scripture. Well, I'm going to use even more this morning. And I, I just couldn't see myself cutting any of these out. And so we we may go through some of it rather quickly, but I encourage you to take some notes. Uh, You also should be reminded that we put the sermon slides up on the website uh, every Monday afternoon. Uh, So you can go back and look at some of these and and just encourage you to really meditate on them. Let the Lord speak to you through these scriptures uh, that we'll be looking at this morning. Let's begin with these words from the Apostle Paul who understood... The central importance of loving like Jesus. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We call this the uh, love chapter. And no, this was not written for weddings. If you look at the context, Paul is actually talking about divisions and tensions within the church there at Corinth. And he talks about the importance of loving each other as Christ has loved them. This is from the message, 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 through 7. Paul said, If I speak with human eloquence in angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. I think the NIV says, um, What does the NIV say? Do you have the NIV? What does it say? <laughs> I can't hear any of you. <laughs> Sorry. I can think of an, another image, might be uh, fingernails on a chalkboard. Right? I'm nothing but that. That's it. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, or what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Think about that, church. Again, Paul writes this to the church in Galatia who have been deceived into accepting a works righteousness, and rule-following approach to the gospel, which is no gospel at all. Paul said this, Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, he said, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. As you'll hear in today's message, loving like Jesus is at the heart of our faith. It's first and foremost what we've been called to as his disciples because, you see, you can learn, you can grow, you can excel in your faith in many ways. And if it were possible, you could even believe and hold to all the right doctrines and interpretations of Scripture. But if you're not increasing your capacity to love like Jesus, then you're not only missing the point of the Christian faith, you're not seeing God rightly. Can I get an amen? This is the point. This is what is at the center of our faith, increasing our capacity to love like Jesus. And I believe if we really stop and think about this, even though we all struggle with it in some way or another, uh, we know this to be true, don't we? We know this is right. We know that the church is supposed to be a place where people encounter Jesus and his love. Because when it's not, that that's not our experience, we think to ourselves, well, that's not right, right? You ever been mistreated in the church or somebody did something that was unchristlike? like you, you think to yourself, well, that's not right. That's not supposed to be. I, I can't believe they said that. I can't believe that they did that. And we've experienced this lack of love. We may even want to walk away from the church. Believe me, folks, I understand that. I grew up in the church. In my 41 years of church experience and over 20 years of ministry, we've seen some significant acts of love, people loving us like family. And for most of our marriage, Lana and I, we've been away from our immediate family. And so the church has come around us to be that. Uh, given us financial gifts in time of need. We've experienced that. People who've embodied the love of Jesus have welcomed the stranger, the outcast, and the sinner into the congregation. But we've also seen and experienced some really ugly, unloving things. Do you know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Growing up in the church, I saw my home congregation split apart one Sunday morning in worship. As people yelled and accused each other in the pain and the fallout of sexual immorality in the church, which involved the pastor. I've experienced the heartbreak and confusion upon learning that people you looked up to in the church aren't the same on the job. It's hurtful. It's painful. I've been on the receiving end of gossip and slander when none of the accusations were true. And one time, many years ago, back in Texas, I remember I borrowed a chair from a classroom in the church building. When you're in a small church, you don't have a large budget. You have to borrow and find what you can, whether it's in your house or somewhere in the church building. So I borrowed this chair in a classroom that I didn't think was being used. It was put in the corner. It had stuff stacked on top of it. I think, I'll take that. I'll use that. To then be told by the owner the next Sunday who was a deacon and a Sunday school teacher that if I didn't bring it back, he would slit my throat. Now folks, this is Texas, so I'm pretty sure he was serious. (laughs) I I remember he said that that we were going to Sunday evening service, and so everybody was coming in the things where he said this. and, And all I could say was, well, that's not very nice. So so we might think of some other personal experiences that we've had, right? Maybe some things are coming to your mind. Why does this sort of thing happen? Well, there are a few reasons for that, I I think. The first one would be that we're all sinners on a journey of discipleship, and we're all at different places. Now, I admit to you, the thing that gets me is people who've been coming to the church for years and years and years— and they've been in a lot of ways allowed to act like that guy who wanted to slit my throat. When the greatest heresy of all folks is the failure to love like Jesus. This is what it's all about. And so so I just I admit that to you. That's a little frustrating. But again, we're all sinners. We need to remember this. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. We're all following Jesus, or should be. That's Jesus is at the center. That's who we're pursuing, and we're all at different places along the path. Also, leading people to the God who looks like Jesus, unfortunately, isn't at the center of every church's mission, but it is here, and that's what we're striving for. We're not perfect. We never will be perfect, but this is this is what we're aiming at. This is the target. Right? It, it is a, a, a center set approach to the church rather than a, a bounded set. You know what I'm saying? Where you have to do certain things and believe certain things to be in. Now, as long as we all say yes to Jesus and are pursuing Jesus together, we should be able to extend grace to each other in that pursuit. Right? That we're all, again, at a different place in our journey. And as a result, if, if, if a church isn't Uh, pursuing this Jesus, this God who looks like Jesus and love like Jesus and other things become the center of gravity in the church, right? Whether it's their specific doctrine or their rules or their country club mentality or whatever it is where they've set the boundaries, uh, folks seem to gravitate around that and that creates the culture of a church. But we want to be about loving like Jesus here at Grantham, amen? So, so real quick, think with me about some of the obstacles and impediments to loving like Jesus. These are just a few that came to my mind. Number one, number one is this, a poor portrait of God. You've heard me say this before. There have been real neurological studies done on this from Christians and non-Christians alike that show that whatever, uh, whatever picture and portrait you have of God impacts the way you think about yourself and the way that you treat Others. This is why we say at Grantham that whatever comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Right? If, if God is someone to be feared, not revered, but feared, like we're afraid of God, or that God is somehow out to get us, or that, that God is always there to correct us when, we, when we're wrong about something and wants us to feel guilty and wants to, to shame us, or or he's some sort of belligerent, monstrous sort of deity, then how is that going to impact our relationship with God? Right? Whether we pray, or whether we read the scriptures, or whether we come to church, or whether we gather with God's people, it absolutely is going to impact the way we relate to God. Now how is it going to make you think about yourself if you have a poor portrait of God, and specifically a portrait that doesn't look like Jesus? How are you going to feel about yourself? How are you going to love your neighbor as yourself, right, if you have a poor portrait of God? So not only it affects your relationship with God, it affects what you think about yourself, but it's going to impact the way you love or don't love other people. Also, another impediment to loving like Jesus is our personal experience of love or lack of it. Maybe it's from a, a parent who didn't love us well. Or maybe it was from like the older gentleman I was referencing who I grew up with and thought was a great pillar of the faith, but saw him on the job and was greatly disappointed. And sometimes we project that onto God. And so if we don't have a real experience of God's love, it's hard to connect, isn't it? I mean, this is why I like The, the Chosen. We showed a clip from that last, uh, last Sunday. Because it gives us a real tangible in the flesh sort of examples of what God is like in Jesus. I've recently been thinking about this other scene from The Chosen where Mary, Mary Magdalene, who of course was saved by Jesus, Jesus cast demons out of her. Uh, there's a scene, and it's, a, it's not in the Bible, but uh, they imagine this scene where, where Mary, like many of us, sort of backslides. And ends up in the place she was before. And the other disciples have to go and get her and bring her to Jesus. And she's ashamed. And, and, and she's confessing to Jesus what she did. And, and she said, I just don't think I can do it. And Jesus said, do what? Mary, I just want your heart. That's all. I just want your heart. And, and following me and becoming like me will come in time. But again, our portrait of God, it becomes an impediment and an obstacle to loving like Jesus. Our personal experience or lack of experience of Jesus' love, it can become an impediment. Number three, not loving ourselves in light of God's love, as I said, becomes an impediment to loving like Jesus. If we're loving ourselves poorly, which I'll say more about in just a minute, then it's going to be really hard to love other people. Number 4, accepting worldly distortions of love. If we're getting our definition of love from Hollywood and what's on social media, god forbid, then you're going to have a hard time loving like Jesus. And then number 5, if you aren't willing, and this may be the most countercultural thing that we could do today, refuse to deny ourselves. Specifically, refuse to deny our flesh. Then we're not going to be able to love like Jesus. And I'll be touching on, on these as we, we go along here. In Matthew chapter twenty two, an expert in the law comes to Jesus and asks him this question Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Now notice this question is setting Jesus up. Likely it's it's followed up by an, another question to back Jesus into a corner. Verse thirty seven. But Jesus responds this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So look, Jesus' response would have actually been the expected, what we'll call the Sunday school answer to the question. He is referencing Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, which is known as the Hebrew Shema. Shema. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Before this expert in the law can jump to his next question, Jesus does something none of them were expecting. Look at verse 39. And the second Jesus said is like it love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself. We'll come back to that. Verse 40 All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. We should notice Jesus here is referencing Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17, and he's pairing it with Deuteronomy 6, doing something which had never been done before. See, while this Pharisee is trying to use this as an opportunity to make Jesus look foolish, the Lord uses it to teach them and to teach us something really important. Jesus is saying your faith isn't just a vertical thing. It's also a horizontal thing. It's not just about loving maker. It's about loving neighbor. It's not just about loving neighbor, as some people want to do. It's also about loving maker. Jesus holds these together. In other words, true love of God looks like love of neighbor. It looks like loving others. And with that, Jesus sums up the entirety of the Old Testament. And pay attention to how Jesus is expanding their understanding of love. If you go and look at Leviticus 19, verse 17 and 18, you get a better understanding of what Jesus is actually doing here. Leviticus 19, verse 17 and 18 says, "'Do not hate a fellow Israelite.'" And look look what I highlighted there. "'A fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt.'" Verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now think about that. You may recall in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is once again asked a question. On this occasion, Jesus is asked how a person can receive eternal life. And Jesus tells his audience to love God and love your neighbor. And then another expert in the law who has likely heard Jesus' broadening definition of love to mean more than just Jews gets his second question in this time and says, and who is my neighbor, Jesus? And to answer that question, Jesus shares what we know as the parable of the Good Samaritan. In this parable, Jesus picks someone who to the Jewish people would have been despised and certainly unloved. Someone of a mixed race, a syncretistic Samaritan whom the Old Testament says was considered unclean and enemies of Israel, going back to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And Jesus picks this person to be the hero of the story, the one who shows love to his neighbor. In this parable, it wasn't the priest or the holy Levite who stopped to help the man attacked by robbers, you'll recall. It was the neighbor-loving Samaritan, which is why Jesus says, of these three men, who was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law is forced to reply, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Because as Jesus teaches us, folks, in the Sermon on the Mount, loving our neighbor also includes loving those we consider to be, or at least in felt experience to be, enemies. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to update or what we might say fulfill what is written in Leviticus by saying this, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and 45. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now look at that. And hate your enemy. Well, that's not what the Scripture says. We just read that in Leviticus. But this is likely a popular sentiment that has been deduced. From Leviticus 19, verse 18. If I'm to love my Jewish neighbor, those like me, those in my tribe, well then surely I have the room and the right to hate those not like me, those outside my group, my family, and my clan. But Jesus says, to make sure they understand what he means, my loving neighbor and loving all, he says, love your enemies and pray for them. And then Jesus ties our status as children of the Father to our obedience of this command. Jesus said, if you want to be identified as children of God, then the way to do that is to love even our enemies. Folks, that's heavy stuff, isn't it? And if we consider ourselves followers of Jesus, then we we don't get to opt out of this for whatever reason. You know, I've said this before. I once had someone high up in the church that I'd served in back in Texas say, David, where in love your enemies does it say we can't kill them? (laughs) Seriously? Folks, look not only to the words of Jesus, but the example of Jesus. So this is serious business. And the Lord expects us to follow him in it. But part of getting there for us to love neighbor and enemy like Jesus did is to remember to love them as we love ourselves. I told you we would come back to this. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, as yourself. Now, what does that mean? I think this can easily be misunderstood. In an age when our individualistic culture breeds narcissistic personalities and destructive behaviors all in the name of self-love. I even saw a book from a Christian author that said something about not inviting the enemy to your table. Like that was in the title. And I'm like, (laughs) I don't even think I could open the book. I mean, Jesus invited enemies to his table. Hello, Judas. Not only supped with him, but washed his feet. So we we need to be careful about the way in which we're defining love and self-care and make sure it lines up with Jesus. When in reality, our inability, you see, to know the love of God for ourselves and experience it, even allow it from others, leads to so-called safe ways of shutting ourselves off, sometimes from the truth. That we are made in God's image, yes, but we are broken and not as we should be. And some people just don't want to hear that. And so in the name of self-care or the name of of loving themselves, they shut themselves off from hearing truth in community, from doing some serious self-reflection, looking in the mirror, as James told us to do. Instead, we must see ourselves for who we really are, church, the good, the bad, and the ugly, sometimes with help from others. And then know that even then, even then, we are loved beyond comprehension. In his commentary on Matthew, Stanley Hirewas, the Christian ethicist, writes, To learn to love our neighbor as ourselves means we must learn to love ourselves as God has loved us. To learn to love ourselves truthfully is not easy because we most often desire to love ourselves on our own terms. The challenge that Jesus presents by joining these commandments here is to learn that one is loved by God so that one is thus able to love God and others. Such a love requires a lifetime of training in which we're given the opportunity to have our self-centeredness discovered and overwhelmed. And brothers and sisters, I, I pray that you will experience the God who receives us as we are but loves us too much to leave us that way. And for the more we know this love, God's love and the Spirit enables us to love ourselves rightly, we will make great advances in how we love others. And as I've said before, a person can only give away the love that they they have received themselves. You can only give away that which you've received. And think about it. If you don't accept and acknowledge the ugly parts about you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, then you can't really experience the grace of God that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then you can't then extend that grace to others who are like you. Are you following me? This is the truth of the gospel. Never forget this. Never forget this. If you see someone withholding love, and some of you have experienced that in the church, or or failing to love like Jesus. It is because they themselves have that much more to go in knowing and experiencing just how much God loves them, has forgiven them, and has freed them from guilt, shame, and those things that have enslaved them to sins like anger, bitterness, impatience, judgmentalism, gossip, prejudice, and projecting their own brokenness, hurts, and pains onto you. Now, wouldn't that help all of us? If in our experience in, our, in the church, when we, when we come up against folks that aren't very loving, we remember that, that we can only give away that which we have received. How would it change our heart Toward those people They're acting out of their portrait of God They're acting out of how they love Or don't love themselves And how they understand the gospel Okay, so we're called to love, right? But what does it really look like? Because it seems these days That a person can do just about anything They feel justified in doing Or is socially acceptable to do Or have mutual consent to do And call it love. So once again, listen to these words from Jesus. This is in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. Jesus said, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. How? Jesus says, just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Notice, Jesus reduces here two commandments into one. Love God, love neighbor, into one. Just as I have loved you. There's no wiggle room. There's no loopholes. And consider what his disciples would have heard in this. Just as I have loved you. What would they have heard? How had Jesus loved them? I mean, first think about this ragtag group of people that Jesus called to be his disciples uneducated fishermen, tax collectors who were hated by most Jews, who betrayed their own people, worked for the empire, zealots who definitely wanted to kill those folks, who wanted violent revolution, and included women. I mean, this is what, this is the group, this is the church that Jesus has formed together, and he loved them each where they were. Imagine those campfire conversations. What would, they have, what would they have thought of? Maybe in this context in John 13, Jesus had washed their feet. He'd taken on the role of a servant, of a slave, took all his clothes off, wrapped a towel around his waist, took on this posture of humility and served them and loved them. Jesus said, I want you to do the same. And of course, Jesus then goes on to show them how much he loves them by dying on the cross. Just as I have loved you. You see, this is this is tau power. This is cross power. You see, a lot of people miss this. You know who didn't miss it? The Apostle Paul. Let's go back to Paul. Paul writes this to the Ephesian Christians. He says in Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God. I think the Greek word there is mimetai. We get the word mimic. Mimic God. As beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. How do we love? As Christ loved us, who's a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul is pointing us to the cross. Paul Paul is calling us to live in love. How? As Christ loved us and revealed the depth of that love on the cross. And don't miss this. The cross isn't just one among many expressions of love. For the apostles, rather they understood that the love that Jesus shows in his sacrifice on Calvary is at the very center of who God is. It's what God is like and why we are to imitate and share this love with others, beginning in the church. Would you, would you open up your Bible? Look at 1 John chapter 4. I want to, us to read this together. This is one of those passages that I could not see us not going to and looking at. And I'm just going to read this. This is 1 John, so we got 1 and 2 Peter, 1, 2nd, 3rd, John, Jude, and Revelation. This is toward the back of your New Testament. 1 John chapter 4. And I'm going to read verse 7 through 21. This is coming from John the disciple. You remember James and John were sons of Zebedee. They were once called the sons of thunder. But John also refers to himself in the gospel as the beloved, the one that Jesus loves. Because later, John understood the love of God in Christ more, it seems, than any of the other disciples. And he writes about that love here in 1 John 4. He says, dear friends, let us continue to love one another for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. Furthermore, we have seen with our eyes and now testify that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And all who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. Again, look at verse 16. He says, once again, God is love. And all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And so we live in God. Our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we've not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. If someone says, oh, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God who we cannot see? And then he's given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. This is the word of the Lord. Yes. And look again at verse 8 and verse 16. John says, God is love. Not simply that God loves, but that God is love. And of course, for this to be true, and think about this with me, there must be a a plurality within God himself. That's because if you're going to be love, you have to have a lover, the beloved, and the love shared between them. And that's exactly what we have with our God who's three and one. I thought it'd be helpful if you saw this in a visual. A visual of the God who's three and one. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We, We believe in historic Christianity. We testify to this mystery that God is three persons acting as one God. We know this because Jesus has revealed this to us. He referred to himself as the Son He spoke and prayed to the Father and did things by the authority of the Father, and then he gave us the Spirit. And then as we just read in 1 John 4, 8 and 16, it says God is love. Now think about this. This is what binds together the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. God is bound together in perfect love, each person being submissive, harmonious, and united in this kind of love. See, God within himself, folks, is this loving community. God didn't create because he was lonely. God created because he wanted to, to share with His creation this unifying love. And then we're told that the Son shows us the Father. The son, the son shows us what God is really like, and I've listed some scriptures there for you. John chapter one, verse 14, that the word has become flesh and lived among us. God has become flesh. And he lived among us, tabernacled among us. And Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life. You can't come to God the Father without coming through Jesus. And Paul tells us in Colossians, and then the author of Hebrews says that that Jesus is the exact representation of God. The, The image of the invisible God has been seen in Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God is like, where we should get our portrait of God from, we look to the person of Jesus. And Jesus reveals then God's love on the cross. You know that verse, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Paul said in Romans five, eight, but God demonstrated his love to us in this way that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, this is love. And then first John three sixteen, this is how we know what love is. Love is about Jesus on the cross. It's about laying our lives down for those that we love. And so we're called to love like Jesus. We've already heard some of those scriptures from Matthew chapter 5 and John chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 13. That's your homework. Go and read all of 1 Corinthians 13. What is love? Love is patient, love is kind. Paul gives us a great description of love. And you could just plug that in there. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not envious. Jesus does not boast. And this is what we're called to be, like Jesus and to love like him. And of course, then the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is given to us by Christ to help us to love like Jesus. Because here's the truth, folks. None of us in our own strength and certainly not in our flesh can love like Jesus. But He's not left us alone. Hallelujah. He has not left us alone. He's given us the Holy Spirit to be, be an advocate, to remind us of what Jesus has said, and to show us how and empower us how we are to live like Jesus. That's why Paul told the Galatian Christians this. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul said those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Another place Paul said we have been, as if we've been nailed to the cross with Jesus. Our sins have been nailed to the cross with Jesus. Our flesh has been crucified with Christ. Paul said I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. But how do we walk by the Spirit, you might ask? How do we keep in step with the Spirit? Well, folks, for starters, it, it won't happen when we are uh, lost in the ways of the world. You know what I mean? When, when all we take in are the ways of the world and, and we see the, the, the world's ways of defining love, when we're caught up in the passions of the world, in the spirit of the age, and not the spirit of God. You see, walking by the spirit, it involves lots of things. It involves uh, having Christ at the center of your gravitational pull, having liturgies at work in your, in your personal life, reading the scriptures, doing devotions, participating in the life of the church, in the liturgies of the church. Having, again, Christ at the center of your gravitational pull, thinking ahead of time, what would it look like to love that belligerent coworker? What would it look like to love that crazy uncle? Because if you're not thinking about those things, if, you're, if your life isn't being shaped by the word of Jesus, you're not, you're not swimming in the scriptures, when that time comes, you have little hope of responding like Christ. So walking according to the Spirit, Paul said, keeping in step with the Spirit. And remember, we can't grow our capacity for love or grow our faith in any way without being willing to deny our flesh, to say no to our carnal impulses. The world wants you just to accept them all. Just accept them all. That's how you feel accepted. That's who you are. But folks, the Scripture tells us, yes, we were made in God's image. We're all broken and not as we should be. So we must filter ourselves through the cross, through the gospel, and surrender all of those things to Jesus. That's what Jesus meant when he said this. Finally, he says in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 35, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. You see, I think that's what we do. We, we cling to anger. We respond out of fear. We're trying to save our life. We're trying to be in control. And sometimes as defense mechanisms to hurt and pain, but Jesus says, give it to him. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. My friends, the pathway to loving like Jesus leads us to the cross. Because it's through the cross and being crucified with Christ that we truly begin to live and get to share in the life and the love of God. So we mustn't think about what we have to give up or even how hard it is to say no, to forgive, to heal, and to let go. But rather, we must consider what we will gain by losing our life so that we might save it in Christ. I invite us to do that this morning. Would you do that? Finally, here are some questions for reflection and to help us to respond to the voice of the Spirit. Number one, what what comes into your mind when you think about God? What comes into your mind? Does it look like Jesus? Number two, how is the Spirit inviting you into a greater awareness of God's love so that you might love yourself and others the way that Jesus loves you? How is the Lord speaking to you about that this morning? Pastor, I'm just having a hard time grasping that Jesus loves me like that. Well, speak to the Lord about that. Say, God, how are you inviting me into a greater awareness of your love, a real experience of your love? And then lastly, number three, what are some thoughts and feelings about your neighbor or your enemy that you need to give to God? How do you need to deny your flesh? so that you can love like Jesus and experience his grace, his mercy, his freedom, and his love. Father, we, we have a hard time receiving your love. We've been shown so many poor examples of this in life. And for some of us, we've grown up in the church and heard a lot about God's love, but then saw something completely different. And so there are certainly obstacles a poor portrait of you, difficulties in loving ourselves the way you love us. And so we have a hard time loving others. Lord, would you help us with that? Lord, as we look to your example and how you loved your own disciples even at times we see you loving the hard-hearted Pharisee. Would you give us that experience too? And would you help us, Lord, this morning not to spurn your love, but to receive it. Not to run from you, but to fall at your feet. Not to think, Lord, that we need to do something, but just to receive you. We receive your love this morning, Jesus. Give us a a real experience of that. Lord, that so when we look at you, we will see Jesus. And that we can love ourselves and we can love others. For it's in Christ's name that we pray.